Hey, it's your host, Carter. I wanted to give you a little bit of a warning. Kids who are under the age of 13 might find some parts of our show a little bit scary, so listener discretion is advised. Now, enjoy the show. Men, tis time I journey home for the night. Night? Tis early morning. Need to get back before the wife wakes. Yo, you, over here. May I help you? Oh, hey, whatever are you doing? What is this nonsense? That ought to do it, boys. Johnson, take him to the coop. The rest of us, we shall find three more men. Come on, this way now. What's going on? Election day. Good old boy. Hi. We're here to vote. Hello, sir. Uh, I'll need your names and birth dates, please. I am Abe Sanders, and this here is Jedediah Wolf. Hello. Sorry. My friend's a bit fond of the drink. Celebrating his day off, see? Mm. You all have to get through this long line somehow. Not the first I've seen today. All sensors. Ballots are on the left, boxes on the right. Thank you for your service to our country. Now, cast your vote for James Pierce. Hear me? James Pierce. Ugly name. No! Yes, that is the ballot you want, good man. Now, drop it in that there ballot box. Good citizen. Let us get our celebratory pints. I voted. Again, and again, and again, and again. What the hell is going on? Shh, blame it. Let us go outside. In here now, come along. All clear? Jedediah Wolf voted for Pierce, as did Martin Durgis, Robert Clingston, and Gerald Lowe. You said I was Gerald, huh? Gerald? Shall we switch him out for another man? Not yet. Now it is, uh, James Bander's turn. Here, have another drink. Change his hat. Which one is we headed to? It's on Frederick Avenue in South Pratt. Perfect. Enough whiskey. Come on, James Bander. One more drink to celebrate Election Day. Election Day. You always know it's coming, but you never know what's coming. And U.S. elections today are mellow compared to the politics of the 1800s. Brawling, rigging, stealing ballots, and in 1849, the murder of Edgar Allan Poe. What did that have to do with the election? That's what we're going to investigate today on Unsolved Murders, True Crime Stories. This is episode 19 of Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories and the final installment of Edgar Allan Poe. If you want to review an episode of Unsolved Murders or to hear our investigation into other cases, you can find them all on your favorite podcast directory. Don't forget to subscribe. You can also listen on our website, parcast.com, spelled P-A-R-C-A-S-T dot com. A new episode comes out every Tuesday. 
I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. And I'm Carter Roy. And now, back to Edgar Allan Poe. As we discussed last week, Edgar Allan Poe is one of the most famous American writers ever, though he was grossly underappreciated in his lifetime. All I ask is for a loan, an advance, a friendly show of aid. Once the stylus goes to print, I shall return the favor in full. Tisn't about you personally, but your history in the magazine business You said my writing was brilliant. Tisn't a safe investment. Often poor and often fired, Poe's life was marked by tragic deaths, which heavily influenced his morbid poetry and mysterious stories. Virginia, light of my heart, you simply mustn't leave me too. I feel myself succumbing to the consumption every day. It is inevitable. Just remember, above all, I want you to be happy. Then stay with me. Live. In his own tragic death, left us with one final mystery. Reynolds. 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 Who killed Edgar Allan Poe? Reynolds. The case is fit for Poe's crime-solving hero, C. August Dupine. So let's do as Dupine would do and analyze the evidence and eyewitness accounts. Rumor has it that in the hospital, Poe was diagnosed with congestion of the brain, which was the general term used for alcoholism or drug overdose. Unfortunately, Poe's hospital records and death certificate have mysteriously disappeared, if they ever existed. So that theory isn't verified. Congestion of the brain does, however, match two of the most prominent public opinions on Poe directly following his death, those of Dr. J. Evans Snodgrass and Rufus Griswold. Griswold, as we mentioned last week, hated Poe. They were literary rivals. After Poe's death, Griswold wrote the most famous and unflattering description of Poe ever, and in an obituary, no less. Edgar Allan Poe is dead. He died in Baltimore the day before yesterday. This announcement will startle many, but few will be grieved by it. Irascible, envious, bad enough, but not the worst. For these salient angels were all varnished over with cold, repellent cynicism. His passions vented themselves in sneers. There seemed to him no moral susceptibility, and what was more remarkable in a proud nature, little or nothing of the true point of honor. To add injury to insult, Griswold wormed his way into being named the executor of Poe's literary estate and set to work making money off the man that he scorned by publishing a biography and anthologies, which kept the same cutting tone as the obituary. So Poe's getting painted as a haughty, morbid cynic with no morals by his rival. His friends, meanwhile, weren't much nicer. Edgar Allan Poe was a drunk. He died as he lived, drinking away his life on someone else's dime. Wasting true talent. Dr. Joseph Snodgrass, the man who identified Poe when he was found on the streets, insisted that, being found outside a bar, Poe had died from alcohol poisoning. However, Snodgrass was a major player in the temperance movement, the same ideals that eventually led to prohibition in the 1920s. In his friend's unfortunate death, Dr. Snodgrass saw a cautionary tale and made it a part of his anti-alcohol campaigning. It's pretty sad that Snodgrass used Poe's death to further his political aims instead of trying to investigate what actually happened. And other friends weren't much more supportive in the mourning process. Only eight people attended Poe's funeral, held near his uncle Henry Herring's home in Baltimore. (laughs) Tis bitter cold today. Let us return home. We have to stay, Nelson. 
Edgar was our cousin. What are you doing to his corpse? Clipping mementos. Unlike you, I shall miss Edgar. I shall miss him. I drove the hearse, did I not? We each mourn in our own way, cousins. Besides that, several of Poe's admirers have asked for a lock, and I might like to pass some down to my children. Henry, do you have portraits of Edgar I could glue the hair upon? I will look, Rebecca. I despise that practice. For all your talk, you do not seem to be grieving. Don't you accuse me of not grieving as you sit here and mutilate the corpse. The hair shan't be missed by the dead. I want you to respect him. You. Oh, come here. <laughs> Are these all the expected guests? And then some, if you include Edgar's schoolmates. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to bother with a sermon, seeing as there are only eight of you here. I will lead a few prayers, and then you are free to say your goodbyes to Edgar. Poe's funeral was three minutes total. Simply one more sad turn in his story. But that hare that wasn't buried with him took on quite a life of its own after Poe's cousin Rebecca Herring distributed it to relatives and Poe's admirers. Oh, now that sounds pretty morbid and creepy. Surprisingly, it was a common practice. This was shortly after it was discovered that keeping your dearly departed's dead body on a table for a week and then burying them in the backyard was very unsanitary. But people still felt the need for a physical connection with their dead relatives and friends. So hair would be collected and put in a wallet or taped to the back of a portrait. The practice started with saints and religious icons, but by the mid-18th century, it had stooped to the level of pretty much anyone. Since Poe's death, locks of his hair have turned up in attics and art collections across the country and have sold for hundreds of thousands of dollars. Sort of like an autograph, but creepier. Ooh, right. And how's that for DNA evidence? Just not the kind we're looking for. Mm, but it did help. 147 years post-mortem, lab studies were done on Edgar's hair. Funny enough, the scientists didn't start out looking for evidence of murder. The hair was studied to see if Poe's morbid poetic tone was the result of pollutants from gas lamps poisoning his system. So maybe writing all of that poetry would finally pay off with justice. The scientist, Professor Stephen Mako, didn't find any air pollutants in Poe's hair, different from those that were found in other people from that era. So that study was a bust. However, the hair analysis wasn't for nothing. Chemicals and pollutants found in Poe's hair could now be analyzed to see if they corroborated any theories on his death. For example, Poe's delirium and hallucinations could have been the result of mercury poisoning. But his mercury levels, though high, were well below an amount that would have affected him. They also found low levels of lead across various hair samples. And this is where it gets interesting. Because if Edgar had truly been an alcoholic, or even a regular drinker, the amount of lead found in his hair would have been very high. So, over 150 years later, we know that Snodgrass lied for his cause, and Edgar Allan Poe did not drink himself to death. The other post-post-mortem analysis done on Poe's corpse is a bit more speculative, but an interesting theory to consider. Poe's body was exhumed 26 years after his death, that's in 1875, to be reburied in a grave more befitting of a legendary writer. Newspaper accounts of the story mentioned onlookers thrilled and disgusted at the sight of Poe's brain, preserved in his skull. George W. Spence, the sexton who directed the exhumation, was quoted in the St. Louis Republican newspaper, describing it as, His brain rattled around inside his skull, just like a lump of mud. 
What imagery? But here's the thing. Brains are one of the first body parts to rot and liquefy to a pudding-like consistency after death, which doesn't line up with the hard, shrunken mass reported in the papers. So that thing in his head wasn't his brain? Well, if it was, it would have been sloshing, not rattling and hitting the skull. Ugh. What was in Poe's head? In 2006, Poe researcher Matthew Pearl proposed the theory that Poe may have had a brain tumor. According to Pearl, certain types of brain tumors calcify over time, which would have explained the rattling mass in Poe's skull. It also explains the delusions, forgetfulness, and incoherence Poe exhibited in his last two weeks alive. It certainly makes sense. But as Pearl himself said, just because Poe may have had a brain tumor doesn't mean that's what killed him. Especially when you take into account the testimony of Poe's physician, Dr. Moran, confirming long-standing theories of foul play. So let's look more deeply into the circumstances surrounding Poe's death. The greatest witness we have to Poe's final days was his attending physician, Dr. John Joseph Moran. No one was allowed to visit Poe in the hospital, so he was one of the few people who saw the state that Poe was in. Shortly after Edgar's death, Dr. Moran answered a letter from Maria Clem, describing the poet's last days. The letter is several pages long, but here's a piece of his description. When brought to the hospital, he was unconscious of his condition, who brought him or with whom he had been associating. He remained in this condition from 5 o'clock in the afternoon, the hour of his admission, until 3 the next morning. This was on the 3rd October. This lines up with being drugged and beaten up, as well as several diseases Poe could have contracted, such as syphilis, epilepsy, or cholera. Later, Moran mentioned Poe's repeated calling out Reynolds, and then a change of symptoms. To this state succeeded a tremor of the limbs, and at first a busy but not violent or active delirium, constant talking, and vacant converse with spectral and imaginary objects on the walls. His face was pale, and his whole person drenched in perspiration. We were unable to induce tranquility before the second day after his admission. Some people have read the hallucinations to be rabies, but Poe lacked the telltale fear of water rabies patients have. It sounds as if Edgar was extremely traumatized and possibly suffering from a head injury. Indeed, and over 20 years later, when Poe had achieved true posthumous fame, Dr. Moran began giving lectures. Moran traveled the country talking about Edgar Allan Poe's last days for 13 years, from 1875 to 1888, when Dr. Moran himself died. And as I said, Griswold's biography was quite offensive to this great man. As his attending physician, I can assure you that Poe did not have the slightest odor of liquor on his breath or person. And even when offered brandy, he refused. Dr. Moran's speeches captivated the crowds. He was a man of temperance. So how did he die? Edgar Allan Poe was mugged and robbed beaten to the point where he could barely stand. He passed away from injuries, and what a loss it was. In my care, Edgar Allan Poe gave beautiful speeches, showing the utmost interest in poetic language. Poe told me, language cannot tell the gushing well that swells, sways, and sweeps, tempest-like over me, signaling the alarm of death. Truly profound. And in a more blunt moment, when I offered to contact his friends, Poe stated, My best friend would be the man who gave me a pistol that I might blow out my brains. What a poet. 
What a man. What an enigma. Dr. Moran's lectures were certainly entertaining. However, his writings on the subject featured inconsistent dates and times, and the odd, flowery quotes he attributed to Poe were so absurd that even the editor of the New York Herald publicly questioned their authenticity when publishing Moran's account of Poe's death. After all, the quotes Moran attributed to Poe, including the cryptic last words mentioned last week, are just a little too well put together to be the ravings of a sick or injured man. Though they do sound like a man trying to build up a mystery, something Poe was an expert in. For my money, it's Moran, not Poe, who was using Poe's final speeches to build up a mystery. Moran had a paying audience to entertain, and he had the whole retiree reliving his glory days deal going on. Right. Moran was only in his 20s when he treated Edgar Allan Poe. And it seems the tales in Dr. Moran's lectures grew more elaborate and intriguing over time. The doctor was known to have an interest in fiction and, like Poe, to exaggerate. So again, all of this information must be taken with a grain of salt. Or two. We're more confident in Moran's letter to Maria Clem, since the incident was fresh in his mind and at that point he had nothing to profit from it. And it's worth noting that he didn't go public at all until years later, when most of the other witnesses were dead. So he could say whatever he wanted. Or maybe he was afraid of stirring up controversy with the temperance movement and starting a feud with Rufus Griswold or Dr. Snodgrass. So, if Dr. Moran was correct in his diagnosis and Poe was beaten up, who did it? Was it random? Or did Poe have warning? If someone was after him, well, that would explain why Poe got on the wrong train. Or boat. Right. No one is sure exactly how Poe got to Baltimore, but he certainly took the wrong train or boat, which isn't an unheard of accident. Anyone could do that if they weren't feeling well or had a lot on their mind. So he had one mental slip-up, nothing worth writing home about. Mm, Until you find out he had a second one. Ooh, that's intriguing. But it's time we take a minute to talk about our intriguing sponsor. Good idea, Wendy. And after, we'll further examine Edgar Allan Poe's less-than-sharp mental state. And now, back to Edgar Allan Poe. The night before catching the train to Baltimore, Poe visited a friend, Dr. Carter. I think I shall step over to Sadler's for a few moments. Do not forget your cane. Yes, thank you, Doctor. Have a good evening. You as well, Edgar. Safe travels to Philadelphia. I shall see you at my wedding. Hmm. Is this... John? Yes, sir. Poe left his cane. I'm about to retire, but see that he gets it if he returns. Consider it done. Blast it! Dr. Carter... Can I assist you? It appears Poe took my cane instead. (sighs) Wrong train, wrong cane. Now that's suspicious. Carter's cane wasn't just a cane. And I'm not being Freudian here. It was a sword cane. Oh, not Freudian at all. For those of you unfamiliar with 19th century weapons, it was a sword inside a cane. Perfect for self-defense. So maybe taking the wrong cane also wasn't an accident. Poe may have been on the run and in need of a weapon. But who would be after him? Old enemies, the Royster brothers. After Edgar's quick reunion and second engagement to Elmira Royster Shelton, her family was not pleased. Right. 
Elmira's brothers always agreed with their father that Edgar wasn't good enough for Elmira. Father was right to burn the fool's letters. At the expense of my happiness. Elmira, you have two beautiful children and a fortune. You have happiness. We don't want this Poe character jeopardizing that. Fine. I shall sit on my widow's fortune despite my mere 39 years. You could speak more happily, Mother. You shall have grandchildren to spoil soon enough. Elmira's children openly disapproved, since Elmira would lose three-quarters of her late husband's estate upon remarrying. Ignoring her family, Elmira and Edgar had planned to be married in just ten days when he left Richmond for the last time. For all the other Roysters and Shelton's, family pride and money were on the line. Perhaps a gentlemanly discussion would do him some good. Yes. Man to man. Put the scheming scoundrel in his place. Shall we consider... If it keeps our sister from becoming destitute, I'll go as far as necessary. It's possible that Elmira's brothers plotted to get Poe out of the way. In a theory proposed by author John Evangelist Walsh in his book, Midnight Dreary, Poe went to Philadelphia, was attacked and beaten up by the Royster brothers, then fled to Baltimore, his old home, to escape death at their hands. Once in Baltimore... The head injury, inflicted by one of the Roysters, worsened, causing Poe's disorientation, hallucinations, loss of memory, and eventual death. So the Roysters could have killed him. To add to the theory after Edgar's death, Elmira backtracked on her engagement, declaring, I would not have married him under any circumstance. Which certainly pleased her family. She also neglected to attend Edgar's funeral. Well, that's odd. Seems like the weeping fiancé would be front and center at the service. Do you think she knew what her family did and was kept away by her guilty conscience? It's possible. Or perhaps she realized the need to placate them, if they had indeed turned to assault when they believed it was in her best interests. Right. The thing is, Elmira's claim and failure to attend the funeral contradicted documented evidence of her feelings for Edgar. In a letter to Maria Clem shortly before Edgar's death, She referred to Edgar as the dearest object on earth and waxed poetic about how she was ready to accept Maria as not only a mother-in-law, but as her own mother. Sounds like she backtracked to make her family happy. Just another piece of evidence that proves how much they hated Edgar. That all makes sense, but if he was attacked, why didn't Poe use Dr. Carter's sword cane to defend himself? Dr. Carter, I've just received word from the Swan Tavern. Yes? They found your cane. The one Edgar Poe took. He left it there? The irascible fool? (sighs) I shall pick it up tomorrow. Thank you, John. If Poe had been worried for his life, he probably would have remembered his defensive weapon, yes? But if he had taken Dr. Carter's cane by accident, leaving it in the tavern before catching the early train would have made the most sense. Which shows that he probably went to Baltimore on accident, and not to escape the Roysters. Poe wasn't on the run, but mentally preoccupied, sick, tired, or forgetful. So if it wasn't Elmira's family, and it wasn't alcohol poisoning, who killed Edgar Allan Poe? Politics, perhaps. Those of you who listened to our William Goebel investigation may recall that politics in the 1800s were even crazier than they are in 2016. Hard to believe, but true. Now what have we here? Is that a blue ballot? I think we found ourselves a bad egg. None of your concerns, sir. Oh, but it is our concern. You see, no one votes Whig in the fourth ward. 
but we understand that you might have trouble reading English. You might not have known that the Whigs ballot is blue and the Democrats yellow. Now, we've cleared that up for you. The yellow ballots are there. It would behoove you to get a ballot, sir. This is America. A citizen can vote for whoever he chooses. Hmm. Hi. Who are you voting for? John Jerome. Now see, Patty's got the right idea. We're all Democrats here. He's only here for his free beer. A vote for Jerome is a vote for Jerome. Sir, that makes me feel quite uh, all overish. Now take yourself a caution. You vote for John Jerome and everything will be just hunky-dory. Have a good day, fellas. We warned you. Gotta make an example now. No, 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 sirs! No one votes Whig in Ward 4. Voting was handled differently in the 1800s. Voters had to wait in long lines, ballots were often different colors based on who the vote was for, and some voting boxes were even made of glass. In other words, the secret ballot wasn't that secret. And if you were caught voting for the wrong candidate, you could end up with a black eye. Or worse, swing voters sometimes received death threats. Right. Opinions could be dangerous. Brawling, intimidation, voter fraud, and even murder were all too common. Some political gangs even stole ballot boxes, especially in Baltimore, which earned the nickname Mobtown in the 1850s, thanks to these very same political gangs. So, what does the state of politics in Baltimore have to do with Edgar Allan Poe? Well, he was found outside a bar that was also a polling place the day after a municipal election. At the time, voters were commonly rewarded with free beer for doing their civic duty, so bars were popular polling places. Now, that's one part of the 1840s politics I wouldn't mind bringing back. Unfortunately, the propensity for drunkenness made voter fraud all too easy. Voter IDs weren't strictly monitored. In fact, dead men commonly voted in elections. How did they make that one work? The practice was called cooping, and it was an elaborate form of temporary kidnapping. So similar to Shanghaiing, which we discussed in the last segment? Exactly. Vulnerable men were either drugged or beaten up and then taken to a basement or other closed-off room known as a coop. They were held there, semi-conscious, through Election Day. On Election Day, political gangsters would drag cooped men around the city to vote at different polling places using different IDs. While cooped, men would be plied with liquor so that they were easier to control and would vote for whomever they were told to vote for. The cooped men would vote under the names of the deceased and were dressed in different clothes to avoid recognition. It goes right with the phrase that became all too common a few years later in Chicago. Vote early and vote often. A cooped man might vote as many as 16 times in one election, under 16 identities. And Poe was found in someone else's clothes after going MIA for several days. It fits just a little too well. Dr. Moran described the writer's state of dress when he was admitted to the hospital as... A stained, faded, old bombazine coat. Pantaloons of a similar character, a pair of worn-out shoes run down at the heels, and an old straw hat. Clothes which were easy for thugs to get their hands on. Though poor, Edgar Allan Poe was known for always dressing well and keeping up his neat appearance. He wouldn't be caught dead dressed like that. Until he was. But here's the problem with Dr. Moran and cooping. Dr. Moran also swore that Poe didn't smell like liquor. 
And, if you believe his testimony, Poe wouldn't have been drinking. How would the political gangs have controlled him if they didn't get him drunk? Let's pull a C. August Dupine and analyze it. Poe's friends stated he was a lightweight, that even one drink could send him into a wild fit, which is why he didn't drink much. So, if Poe was being forced to drink, it wouldn't have taken much alcohol for Edgar to lose control. And less alcohol would have exited his system more quickly, perhaps before the time Dr. Moran examined him. And by that reasoning, Poe could have, for all we know, gone to Baltimore to mourn Virginia one last time before getting remarried, had a drink or two, somehow drunkenly injured himself, and then collapsed on the street. But mourning Virginia doesn't line up with the fact that he was wearing someone else's clothes, a hallmark of cooping. It's important to note that cooping was very, very common at the time. So common that even the local Baltimore paper, The Republican and Argus, featured dire warnings leading up to the election. October 1st, 1849. Beware of the Whig tricks. Our opponents are at their old game again. Tickets are out with their candidates and the Hickory emblem. Colonization on a large scale is to be resorted to. Illegal votes will be polled from a distance and otherwise. Coops have been started by them. All this and more the Whigs are doing. See, Democrats, that they do not succeed. Let us all be on the alert. October 3rd, 1849. Democrats of the Fourth Ward, protect your rights. Yours is the ward that will receive the great mass of foreign Whigs. It is in your ward that they expect to swell the vote. And where was Poe found? Right outside the Fourth Ward polls. The theory was first asserted as Edgar Allan Poe's cause of death by publisher John R. Thompson in the 1870s and has maintained popularity ever since. So, who would that make Poe's killer? The men who cooped him? The American political system? Or the men who won the elections that day? Well, let's see. That year, John H.T. Jerome was elected mayor of Baltimore, and Senator James Pierce was elected to represent Maryland in the Senate. Jerome was a Whig, and Pierce was also a Whig. So it was the Whig party seeking power through unjust means. And the blame could fall on the party, or the mayor and senator who profited from cooping, not as direct killers, but as conspirators. But the real blame would fall on members of the political gangs themselves. Who are, sadly, impossible to track down, assuming they did it. There is one more piece to this puzzle. Reynolds! Reynolds! See, Doctor? He calls and calls for this Reynolds fellow. His vitals? Steady. Reynolds. Hmm. How do you feel, Mr. Poe? Reynolds! Here now, Mr. Poe, have some water. And perhaps after, you can sleep. Nurse Adelaide, we shall deduce who this Reynolds is and contact them at a time other than three o'clock in the morning. Mr. Poe most likely requires rest. The last clue in the mystery is Reynolds, the name Poe called out in delirium from his deathbed. Before we get into that, I want to take a minute to talk about our sponsor. After the break, we'll examine the possible figures who could have been Reynolds and conclude our theory on who killed Edgar Allan Poe. Now, let's return to the mysterious Reynolds. The first theory about Reynolds is that it's a reference to Jeremiah Reynolds, an explorer and advocate for the exploration of the polar ice caps. Jeremiah Reynolds was inspiration for the narrative of Arthur Gordon Pym, Poe's only novel. Calling for Reynolds, Poe could have been reflecting on his life's work, or he could have been hallucinating that he was once again writing. 
Some think it was a poetic reference to entering the unknown territory of death, like Reynolds encouraged explorers to enter the unknown Arctic. If we're getting poetic, Reynolds sounds a lot like renounce, a word used twice in the Pledge of the Sons of Temperance, the anti-alcohol group Poe joined shortly before his engagement to Elmira Royster Shelton. So if Poe was force-fed alcohol by thugs who cooped him, or if he fell off a wagon when mourning Virginia, he may have been worried about being kicked out of the Sons of Temperance and angering his fiance, Or maybe we're taking this too far. Perhaps Reynolds was just a person Poe encountered, somebody he wanted to see again. Indeed. Research into historical records proves that a prominent Baltimore carpenter and election judge was at the Ward 4 polls. His name? Henry Reynolds. So perhaps it was Poe's garbled way of saying he was cooped? Trying to clue in his doctors that a man named Reynolds had the answers. He did love ciphers. Oh, speaking of ciphers, there's one more Reynolds Poe may have been talking about. But in order to discuss it properly, we need to discuss one of Poe's tales, the second of his C. August Dupine stories. As we discussed earlier in the investigation, C. August Dupine was a character who solved murder mysteries and the forerunner to Sherlock Holmes and every other literary detective. Poe followed up his first massively successful Dupine tale, Murders in the Rue Morgue, with The Mystery of Marie Roget. The story is framed as an article and recounts the narrator's conversation with C. August Dupine as Dupine analyzed the murder of a Parisian shop girl. But what's really interesting is the murder of Marie Roger is directly parallel to a real-life murder. And we mean directly. Poe's story is actually an analysis of the death of Mary Rogers, a beautiful teenage New Yorker found dead in the Hudson shortly before Poe published the story. Every detail is identical with only names and locations changed. Poe even goes as far as saying, in the text, that the case of Marie Roger is much like that of Mary Rogers, hanging a lampshade on it. Smart. Since Mary Rogers' murder was all over the tabloid newspapers, and the inspiration would have been obvious to readers. She was like the Jean Benet Ramsey of the time. Now it's worth pointing out that what Poe did with the mystery of Marie Roger was not common. Though all over the papers, true crime wasn't the entertainment genre it is now. Edgar Allan Poe was actually the first writer to use a real crime to create entertainment. You could call him the father of this podcast. (laughs) Or at least the mascot. Now, our following investigation into the story does include spoilers. So out of respect for our true crime-loving fans, we'll give you a moment to read Poe's story before tuning back in. Okay, so in the tale of Marie Roger, Dupine pins the blame for the girl's murder on a swarthy sailor. What? I was thinking it was Reynolds. Be patient. We'll get to Reynolds in a minute. Interestingly, naval officers weren't really suspected in Mary Rogers' case. The prime suspects were a random band of criminals, her fiancé, and her employer, John Anderson. John Anderson was a successful businessman in the tobacco industry, much like Poe's stepfather, John Allen. Anderson owned a shop in New York. And multiple accounts claim that Anderson and Poe knew each other. The first record of their relationship is fascinating. In 1891, John Anderson's will was contested by one of his children. The case was settled before it got to the point of needing an official court transcript, but was high-profile enough to make the papers. The New York Times, continuing the contest of the will of the late John Anderson, 
Ex-Judge Curtis asked him if he did not know that John Anderson gave Poe $5,000 to write the story of Marie Roger in order to draw people's attention from himself, who, many believed, was the murderer. Could it be true? Did Poe cover up a killing? Was he that strapped for cash? Was it a favor to a friend? Was it blackmail? Or was it typical lawyering, using intimidation and slander to win their client's case? Who knew one sentence could spark so many questions? Well, just eight years later, more information came to light on Poe's relationship with Anderson and the mystery of Marie Roger. The New York Evening Post published an article by a mysterious J.P.M., who claimed to have been a delivery boy for Poe in the 1840s. The article, entitled The Bones of Annabelle Lee, focused mostly on Edgar's emotional struggle as he watched his wife slowly die. However, it also contains an anecdote about a dinner between Poe and Anderson in 1846, as told to him by Anderson. John, if you would just hear me out on this. Do not be a rummy, Edgar. I do not believe tis anything to worry about. You're whitewashing the situation. Can I cut you a slice? No, thank you. I have designs on another roll. Uh, the rolls are divine. They are excellent. You must compensate your cook quite well. Edgar, let us not return to compensation. We would not have to return if you had simply met my requests. Tis hardly a request. You come up here demanding money. You wanted me to keep the secret, did you not? Are you handling carving the roast? I could slice. I could slice a man as easily. Now? Now? Is that truly necessary? Edgar, put down the knife. Tis true, one glass of wine and you become a wild man. I shall call the cook if you do not oblige. I'm not a wild man. All you tobacco men are the same dishonest scum. Dash it all! According to Anderson, at this dinner, the pair got into a violent quarrel. Poe got insanely drunk and threatened Anderson with a carving knife. This was shortly after the mystery of Marie Roger was republished. And perhaps John didn't like the story was being brought back into the public eye again. Had Poe been paid to write a story throwing the police off of Anderson's trail? And if so, was he attempting blackmail and extortion upon the reprint? Or was he being threatened not to publish it again? Well, Edgar obviously agreed to the republishment for money and notoriety, but it may have scared John. Another source, a man named Wallace, who was also at the dinner, told J.P.M. that Poe was not drunk, just desperately unhappy and angry to be pulled away from his dying wife. My wife is dying, and I'm here with you. I merely ask for reassurance that the mystery of Mary Roger be laid to rest. Twas such a strain. She does not even have a supper. How will she survive without sustenance? I had to republish Marie Roger, or let my wife waste away. Edgar, I expect you to keep secrets as friends do, repaid in honor. Honor shan't save my dying Virginia. All we can deduce for certain is that Poe and Anderson had an ongoing relationship, and, for some reason, Poe found it best to keep the character based on Anderson a brief mention with presumed innocence. Marie Roger's employer, Monsieur Leblanc, isn't even investigated. But here's something interesting. Poe ends the mystery of Marie Roger with a disclaimer. He essentially says that lightning never strikes twice. And that the case of Mary Rogers, while identical to Marie Roger's, is statistically most likely to be anyone but a swarthy sailor matching the one in the story. Was that a clue to readers to dig deeper? 
or a way to assuage a guilty conscience, not wanting to pin the blame on an innocent when he knew the true killer. Well, Poe himself wrote, Nothing was omitted in Marie Roger, but what I omitted myself. All that is mystification. So what did Poe omit? In 1885, the Detroit Free Press published an article by W.A. Crowfoot containing this. The pretty cigar girl was intimate upstairs and down, and John Anderson became far more intimate with her than he ought to have been. Mrs. Anderson saw, with growing fear, his increasing infatuation. It is also alleged by those who are in a position to know, and from whom my information is obtained, that she was about to become a mother. At the discovery... On the testimony of the relative that is now heard for the first time, but is unimpeachable, John Anderson and a man named Reynolds conspired together how to get rid of the girl, who was likely to make trouble. It was agreed that Reynolds should take her over to Hoboken. This was done, Reynolds starting with her from near the house about six o'clock in the evening and being afterwards met by Anderson. Here the clue breaks, but the girl was never seen again alive. Finally, the mysterious Reynolds. And this time, Reynolds appears to be a murderer. So John Anderson got his pretty young shop girl pregnant, paid his friend Reynolds to kill her, and his friend Edgar Allan Poe to cover it up. The evidence points to it. And so, if Poe, in need of money, planned to republish the mystery of Marie Roget and remind people of the case... Anderson or Reynolds may have attempted to silence him permanently. By yelling Reynolds... Did Poe intend to give away the true identity of not only his murderer, but someone else's? If Poe meant to tip off the police, it was too little too late for both Mary Rogers and Poe himself. Unless, and this is another theory that floats around the internet, Poe himself was Reynolds. There are people who think Poe knew just a little too much about the Mary Rogers killer and that he must have committed the crime. Poe was living with Virginia and Maria in New York at the time frame of the murder. But had he ever even met Mary Rogers? Plausibly. In Anderson's tobacco shop, she may have sold him a cigar. But we have no way of knowing because, after all, they both ended up dead. And like Edgar Allan Poe's case, the murder of Mary Rogers is officially unsolved. Also like Mary Rogers, Poe fascinated the living for years after he was laid to rest. And not every fan was content to simply read Poe's writing. Some had to take it a step further. For example, the Poe Toaster. Starting in the 1930s, every year on Edgar Allan Poe's birthday, a mysterious figure all in black, face hidden in a scarf, visited Poe's grave. He appeared male and carried a silver-tipped cane, much like the one Poe left with Dr. Carter. The Poe Toaster would, as the name suggests, toast Poe with a glass of cognac, and then leave three roses arranged in a distinct pattern along with the unfinished bottle of cognac. This tradition continued until 2010. The toaster remained anonymous, but occasionally left graveside notes, including one saying that the job would be taken over by a son. However, the son wasn't too interested in toasting, and after a series of snarky notes, quickly gave up the gig. So did the toaster have anything to do with the murder? Any intel or guilt? They say a murderer always returns to the scene of the crime. It's more likely to have been the child of the murderer, someone harboring a family secret. Maybe the daughter or son of a political gangster repenting for the family's misdeeds. But the tradition started at least 80 years after Poe's death. Yes. 
So the toaster, having a personal connection to Poe, is unlikely. More likely, it was a crazed fanboy who didn't have an outlet in the pre-Tumblr world. Still, the creepy graveside visitor maintained the aura of mystery around Edgar Allan Poe for over 70 years. Okay, so if it wasn't any relation to the Poe toaster, who killed Edgar Allan Poe? Was it the Royster Brothers? Alcohol poisoning? Reynolds? A political gang? Poe was MIA for multiple days before his death, which makes sense if he was trapped in a basement. Poe had been beaten up, par for the course for political mobsters. He was incoherent, likely due to drinking more than he could handle, which he would have been forced to do by those who had kidnapped him to keep him from rebelling. They would also have forced Poe to consume his free drink after each vote to maintain the disguise. He was in someone else's clothes, which really only fits into the cooping theory. Poe called out for Reynolds, perhaps trying to alert attention to an election official, or crying for help to the man whose name he heard while kidnapped. Or maybe Reynolds was even the name on a fake ID that Poe was forced to use. And since cooping was illegal, no one would ever come forward about it. And those who suspected it may have kept quiet to keep the Whig party in power. We believe Edgar Allan Poe's murderers were a political gang who kidnapped him, cooped him up, forced him to vote, and left him for dead outside the polls. But that's just our theory. Who do you think killed Edgar Allan Poe? Weigh in on Facebook or answer our Twitter poll at Parcast Network. Tell us how you think the life of Edgar Allan Poe met the words of his most famous poem. Quoth the Raven, nevermore. Don't forget to subscribe to Unsolved Murders on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or any other podcast directory. Or through our website, parcast.com. That's P-A-R-C-A-S-T dot A new episode of Unsolved Murders comes out every Tuesday. Let us know what you think and join the conversation on our Parcast Facebook page. You can tweet us at Parcast Network. That's P-A-R-C-A-S-T Network. We thank you for listening. And hope you'll join us for next Tuesday when we start our investigation into Georgette Beadorf. If you enjoyed this episode, tell your friends. I'm Wendy McKenzie. And I'm Carter Roy. We'll see you next time. If we live till next time. Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Ron and Max Cutler. Sound designed by Ron Shapiro with production assistance from Joel Stein, written by Maggie Atmire. Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories stars Carter Roy and Wendy McKenzie. The amazing cast of voice actors includes, by alphabetical order, Mike Capozzi, Nicholas Massu, Manu Narayan, Stephen Pinto, Gregory Paulson, and Vanessa Richardson. Thank you.